Section 7 of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter 2, Part 3. The year drew on. In the hedges, the berries shone red and twinkling above bare twigs. Robins were seen. Great droves of birds dashed like spray from the fallow. Rooks appeared, black and flapping, down to earth. The ground was cold as he pulled the turnips. The roads were churned deep in mud. Then the turnips were pitted and work was slack. Inside the house, it was dark and quiet. The child flitted uneasily round, and now and again came her plaintive, startled cry. Mother! Mrs. Brangwen was heavy and unresponsive. Tired, lapsed back. Brangwen went on working out of doors. At evening, when he came in to milk, the child would run behind him. Then, in the cozy cow sheds, with the door shut and the air looking warm by the light of the hanging lantern, above the branching horns of the cows, she would stand watching his hands, squeezing rhythmically the teats of the placid beast, watch the froth and leaping squirt of milk, watch his hand sometimes rubbing slowly, understandingly, upon a hanging udder. So they kept each other company, but at a distance, rarely speaking. The darkest days of the year came on. The child was fretful, sighing as if some oppression were on her, running hither and thither without relief. And Brangwen went about his work, heavy, his heart heavy as the sodden earth. The winter nights fell early. The lamp was lighted before tea time. The shutters were closed. They were all shut into the room with the tension and stress. Mrs. Brangwen went early to bed, Anna playing on the floor beside her. Brangwen sat in the emptiness of the downstairs room, smoking, scarcely conscious even of his own misery, and very often he went out to escape it. Christmas passed. The wet, drenched, cold days of January recurred monotonously, with now and then a brilliance of blue flashing in, when Brangwen went out into a morning like crystal, when every sound rang again, and the birds were many and sudden and brisk in the hedges. Then an elation came over him in spite of everything, whether his wife were sad, strange or sad, or whether he craved for her to be with him. It did not matter. The air rang with clear noises. The sky was like crystal, like a bell, and the earth was hard. Then he worked and was happy his eyes shining, his cheeks flushed, and the zest of life was strong in him. The birds packed busily round him. The horses were fresh and ruddy. The bare branches of the trees flung themselves up like a man yawning, taut with energy. The twigs radiated off into the clear light. He was alive and full of zest for it all. And if his wife were heavy, separated from him, extinguished, then let her be. Let him remain himself. Things would be as they would be. Meanwhile, he heard the ringing crow of a cockerel in the distance. He saw the pale shell of the moon effaced on a blue sky. So he shouted to the horses and was happy. If driving into Ickleston, a fresh young woman were going in to do her shopping, he hailed her and reined in his horse and picked her up. Then he was glad to have her near him. His eyes shone, his voice laughing, teasing in a warm fashion, made the poise of her head more beautiful. Her blood ran quicker. They were both stimulated. The morning was fine. 
What did it matter that at the bottom of his heart was care and pain? It was at the bottom. Let it stop at the bottom. His wife, her suffering, her coming pain. Well, it must be so. She suffered, but he was out of doors, full on life, and it would be ridiculous, indecent, to pull a long face and to insist on being miserable. He was happy this morning, driving to town, with the hoofs of the horse spanking the hard earth. Well, he was happy if half the world were weeping at the funeral of the other half, and it was a jolly girl sitting beside him, and woman was immortal, whatever happened, whoever turned towards death. Let the misery come when it could not be resisted. The evening arrived later very beautiful, with a rosy flush hovering above the sunset and passing away into violet and lavender, with turquoise green north and south in the sky, and in the east a great yellow moon hanging heavy and radiant. It was magnificent to walk between the sunset and the moon on a road where little holly trees thrust black into the rose and lavender, and starlings, starlings flickered in droves across the light. But what was the end of the journey? The pain came right enough, later on, when his heart and his feet were heavy, his brain dead, his life stopped. One afternoon, the pains began. Mrs. Brangwen was put to bed. The midwife came. Night fell. The shutters were closed. Brangwen came in to tea, to the loaf and the pewter teapot. The child, silent and quivering, playing with glass beads. The house, empty, it seemed, or exposed to the winter night as if it had no walls. Sometimes there sounded, long and remote in the house, vibrating through everything, the moaning cry of a woman in labor. Brangwen, sitting downstairs, was divided. His lower, deeper self was with her, bound to her, suffering, but the big shell of his body remembered the sound of owls that used to fly around the farmstead when he was a boy. He was back in his youth, a boy haunted by the sound of the owls waking up his brother to speak to him, and his mind drifted away to the birds, their solemn, dignified faces, their flight so soft and broad-winged, and then to the birds his brother had shot fluffy, dust-colored, dead heaps of softness with faces absurdly asleep. It was a queer thing, a dead owl. He lifted his cup to his lips. He watched the child with the beads. But his mind was occupied with owls and the atmosphere of his boyhood with his brothers and sisters. Elsewhere, fundamental, he was with his wife in labor. The child was being brought forth out of their one flesh. He and she, one flesh, out of which life must be put forth. Thrent was not in his body, but it was of his body. On her, the blows fell, but the quiver ran through to him, to his last fiber. She must be torn asunder for life to come forth, yet still they are one flesh, and still from further back the life came out of him to her, and still he was the unbroken that has the broken rock in its arms. Their flesh was one rock from which the life gushed out of her who was smitten and rent, from him who quivered and yielded. He went upstairs to her. As he came to the bedside, she spoke to him in Polish. Is it very bad? he asked. She looked at him, and oh, the weariness to her, of the effort to understand another language, the weariness of hearing him, attending to him, making out who he was as he stood there, fair-bearded and alien, looking at her. She knew something of him, of his eyes, but she could not grasp him. She closed her eyes. He turned away, white to the gills. It's not so very bad, said the midwife. He knew he was a strain on his wife. He went downstairs. The child glanced up at him, frightened. I want my mother, she quivered. 
Eh, but she's badly, he said mildly and heeding. She looked at him with lost, frightened eyes. Has she got a headache? No, she's going to have a baby. The child looked round. He was unaware of her. She was alone again in terror. I want my mother, came the cry of panic. Let Tilly undress you, he said. You're tired. There was another silence. Again came the cry of labor. I want my mother, rang automatically from the wincing, panic-stricken child that felt cut off and lost in a horror of desolation. Tilly came forward, her heart wrung. Come and let me undress her, then pet lamb, she crooned. You shall have your mother in the morning. Don't you fret, my ducky. Never mind, Angel. But Anna stood upon the sofa, her back to the wall. I want my mother, she cried, her little face quivering, and the great tears of childish, utter anguish falling. She's poorly, my lamb. She's poorly tonight. But she'll be better by morning. Oh, don't cry. Don't cry, love. She doesn't want you to cry, precious little heart. No, she doesn't. Tilly took gently hold of the child's skirts. Anna snatched back her dress and cried in a little hysteria. No, you're not to undress me. I want my mother. And her child's face was running with grief and tears, her body shaken. Oh, but let Tilly undress you. Let Tilly undress you, who loves you. Don't be willful tonight. Mother's poorly. She doesn't want you to cry. The child sobbed distractedly. She could not hear. I want my mother, she wept. When you're undressed, you shall go up to see your mother. When you're undressed, pet. When you've let Tilly undress you. When you're a little jewel in your nighty love. Oh, don't you cry, don't you? Brangwen sat, stiff in his chair. He felt his brain going tighter. He crossed over the room, aware only of the maddening sobbing. Don't make a noise, he said. And a new fear shook the child from the sound of his voice. She cried mechanically, her eyes looking watchful through her tears, in terror alert to what might happen. I want my mother, quivered the sobbing, blind voice. A shiver of irritation went over the man's limbs. It was the utter, persistent unreason, the maddening blindness of the voice and the crying. You must come and be undressed, he said in a quiet voice that was thin with anger and he reached his hand and grasped her. He felt her body catch a convulsive sob, but he was too blind and intent, irritated into mechanical action. He began to unfasten her little apron. She would have shrunk from him, but could not, so her small body remained in his grasp while he fumbled at the little buttons and tapes, unthinking, intent, unaware of anything but the irritation of her. Her body was held taut and resistant, he pushed off the little dress and the petticoats, revealing the white arms. She kept stiff, overpowered, violated. He went on with his task. And all the while she sobbed, choking. I want my mother. He was unheedingly silent, his face stiff. The child was now incapable of understanding. She had become a little mechanical thing, a fixed will. She wept, her body convulsed, her voice repeating the same cry. Oh, dear o' oh me, cried Tilly, becoming distracted herself. Brangwen's slow, clumsy, blind, intent, got off all the little garments and stood the child naked in its shifts upon the sofa. Where's her nighty? he asked. Tilly brought it and he put it on her. Anna did not move her limbs to his desire. He had to push them into place. She stood with fixed, blind will, resistant, a small, convulsed, unchangeable thing, weeping ever and repeating the same phrase. He lifted one foot after the other, pulled off slippers and socks, she was ready. Do you want a drink? he asked. She did not change. Unheeding, uncaring, she stood on the sofa, standing back, alone, her hands shut and half-lifted, 
her face all tears, raised and blind, and through the sobbing and choking came the broken, I want my mother. Do you want a drink, he said again. There was no answer. He lifted the stiff, denying body between his hands. Its stiff blindness made a flash of rage go through him. He would like to break it. He set the child on his knee and sat again in his chair beside the fire, the wet, sobbing, inarticulate noise going on near his ear, the child sitting stiff, not yielding to him or anything, not aware. A new degree of anger came over him. What did it all matter? What did it matter if the mother talked Polish and cried in labor, if this child were stiff with resistance and crying? Why take it to heart? Let the mother cry in labor. Let the child cry in resistance, since they would do so. Why should he fight against it? Why resist? Let it be, if it were so. Let them be as they were, if they insisted. And in a daze he sat, offering no fight. The child cried on, the minutes tickled, trickled away. A sort of torpor was on him. It was some little time before he came to and turned to tend to the child. He was shocked by her little, wet, blinded face. A bit dazed, he pushed back the wet hair. Like a living statue of grief, her blind face cried on. Nay, he said, not as bad as that. It's not as bad as that, Anna, my child. Come, what are you crying for so much? Come, stop now, it'll make you sick. I wipe you dry, don't wet your face anymore. Don't cry any more wet tears. Don't, it's better not to. Don't cry, it's not so bad as all that. Hush now, hush, let it be enough. His voice was queer and distant and calm. He looked at the child. She was beside herself now. He wanted her to stop. He wanted it all to stop, to become natural. Come, he said, rising to turn away. We'll go and supper up the beast. He took a big shawl, folded her round, and went out into the kitchen for a lantern. You're never taking the child out of a night like this, said Tilly. A it'll quiet her, he answered. It was raining. The child was suddenly still. Shocking, shocked, finding the rain on its face, the darkness. We'll just give the cows their something to eat before they go to bed, Brangham was saying to her, holding her close and sure. There was a trickling of water into the butt, a burst of raindrops sputtering onto her shawl, and the light of the lantern swinging, flashing on a wet pavement and the base of a wet wall. Otherwise, it was black darkness, one breathed darkness. He opened the doors, upper and lower, and they entered into the high, dry barn that smelled warm, even if it were not warm. He hung the lantern on the nail and shut the door. They were in another world now. The light shed softly on the timbered barn, on the whitewashed walls, and the great heap of hay. Instruments cast their shadows largely. A ladder rose to the dark arch of a loft. Outside, there was a driving rain. Inside, the softly illuminated stillness and calmness of the barn. Holding the child on one arm, he set about preparing the food for the cows, filling a pan with chopped hay and brewer's grains and a little meal. The child, all wonder, watched what he did. A new being was created in her for the new conditions. Sometimes a little spasm, eddying from the beyond storm of sobbing, shook her small body. Her eyes were wide and wondering, pathetic. She was silent, quite still. In a sort of dream, his heart sunk to the bottom, Leaving the surface of him still quite still, he rose with a pan full of food, carefully balancing the child on one arm, the pan in the other hand. The silky fringe of the shawl swayed softly, grains and hay trickled to the floor. He went along a dimly lit passage behind the managers, where the horns of the cows pricked out of the obscurity. 
The child shrank. He balanced stiffly, rested the pan on the manger wall, and tipped out the food half to his cow, half to the next. There was a noise of chains running as the cows lifted or dropped their heads sharply. Then a contented, soothing sound, a long snuffing as the beasts ate in silence. The journey had to be performed several times. There was the rhythmic sound of the shovel in the barn. Then the man returned, walking stiffly between the two weights, the face of the child peering out from the shawl. Then the next, as he stooped, she freed her arm and put it around his neck, clinging soft and warm, making all easier. The beasts fed. He dropped the pan and sat down on a box to arrange the child. Will the cows go to sleep now, she said, catching her breath as she spoke. Yes. Will they eat all their stuff up first? Yes, hark at them. And the two sat still, listening to the snuffing and breathing of cows, feeding in the sheds, communicating with his small barn. The lantern shed a soft, steady light from one wall. All outside was still in the rain. He looked down at the silky folds of the paisley shawl. It reminded him of his mother. She used to go to church in it. He was backed again in the old irresponsibility and security, a boy at home. The two sat very quiet. His mind, in a sort of trance, seemed to become more and more vague. He held the child close to him. A quivering little shudder, re-echoing from her sobbing, went down her limbs. He held her closer. Gradually, she relaxed. The eyelids began to sink over her dark, watchful eyes. As she sank to sleep, his mind became blank. When he came to, as if from sleep, he seemed to be sitting in a timeless stillness. What was he listening for? He seemed to be listening for some sound a long way off from behind, from beyond life. He remembered his wife. He must go back to her. The child was asleep, the eyelids not quite shut, showing a slight film of black pupil between. Why did she not shut her eyes? Her mouth was also a little open. He rose quickly and went back to the house. Is she asleep? whispered Tilly. He nodded. The servant woman came to look at the child who slept in the shawl, with cheeks flushed hot and red and a whiteness, a wanness around the eyes. God of mercy, whispered Tilly, shaking her head. He pushed off his boots and went upstairs with the child. He became aware of the anxiety grasped tight as his heart because of his wife, but he remained still. The house was silent save for the wind outside and the noisy trickling and splattering of water in the water butts. There was a slit of light under his wife's door. He put the child into bed, wrapped as she was in the shawl, for the sheets would be cold. Then he was afraid she might not be able to move her arms, so he loosened her. The black eyes opened, rested on him vacantly, sank shut again. He covered her up, the last little quiver from the sobbing shook her breathing. This was his room, the room he had had before he married. It was familiar. He remembered what it was to be a young man, untouched. He remained suspended. The child slept, pushing her small fist from the shawl. He could tell the woman her child was asleep. But he must go to the other landing. He started. There was a sound of the owls, the moaning of the woman. What an uncanny sound. It was not human. At least to a man. He went down to her room, entering softly. She was lying still, with eyes shut, pale, tired. His heart leapt, fearing she was dead. Yet he knew perfectly well she was not. He saw the way her hair went loose over her temples. Her mouth was shut with suffering and a sort of grin. She was beautiful to him, but it was not human. He had a dread of her as she lay there. What had she to do with him? She was other than himself. Something made him go and touch her fingers that were still grasped on the sheet. Her brown-gray eyes opened and looked at him. She did not know him as himself, 
but she knew him as the man. She looked at him as the woman in childbirth looks at the man who begot the child in her, an impersonal look, in the extreme hour, female to male. Her eyes closed again, a great scalding peace went over him, burning his heart and his entrails, passing off into the infinite. When her pains began afresh, tearing her, he turned aside and could not look, but his heart in torture was at peace, his bowels were glad. He went downstairs into the door outside, lifted his face to the rain, and felt the darkness striking unseen and steadily upon him. The swift, unseen threshing of the night upon him silenced him, and he was overcome. He turned away indoors, humbly. There was the infinite world, eternal, unchanging, as well as the world of life. End of section 7